begin this evening, I want to start off by pouring out my heart to you again. I want you guys to know that I am not confrontational by nature, I'm not bold by nature, and I know that some of you are struggling with some of the words that I'm saying. I understand that some of you feel offended by some of the things I'm saying, and I want you to know that I do not take delight in offending any of you. You know, when you, when you look on YouTube, you see these, um, these little um, thumbnails that say, uh, so-and-so owns libs, you know, watch this video, and he's, here's this conservative hero who's going to own liberals with his impeccable logic. I don't feel that way. I, I don't delight in you being wrong. I don't despise you. I don't look down on you. I have great compassion for you. I know what it's like to live in darkness. I know what it's like to be blind. I know what it's like to not have hope, to be deeply insecure, to not be certain about the present or the future and traumatized by the past. I know these things well. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to get you to sympathize for me, but to, to, to get you to know that I feel you deeply. And if I say anything tonight or I've said anything in the past that ticks you off, then just know it's coming from love. Because true love will challenge. True love doesn't just say whatever you say is good. Because if, if you understand that you are fallible like me, then that means that you're going to be awfully wrong regularly. I'm going to be wrong. And the most loving people in my life, like my wife and my other pastors at my church and my best friends, one of the reasons why they hold such prestige in my life is because they challenge me regularly because they know how wrong I am. So I'm going to say some things tonight, and I have said some things, and I'll continue to say some things that will challenge you. And if you are offended, it is likely that you're actually understanding the claims of Christ. See, my big concern is not for those of you here who are pissed off at me and want to walk out or hurt by anything I'm saying. I have deep compassion for you if that's you. And I hope that you can stick with me. I actually have even greater fear for those of you here who are hearing the claims of Christ, hearing the words of scripture, and you do not realize that I'm talking about you. That you think this is about your friend or the other person who joined and visited your youth group. That you don't realize that this is about you too. And that the claims of Christ are supreme over all of us and we all have to do something in response. So I'm, I'm fearful for the one of you here who's just like, camp is great, you know? And you don't realize that you have to make a decision about this man. Who is this Jesus? That little spoken word was so helpful because you have to ask yourself, why all this fuss about this man? I also want to say this to you. Some of you, your heart is starting to yearn. Maybe it's been yearning for a while. And some of the things that I'm saying, your youth pastors or your leaders or just different environments throughout this camp is stirring something in your soul and you want more, but your friends are holding you back. You are afraid. There was times in the last worship set that you wanted to worship because something inside of you saying, there's something greater than me and I need to give, it, give you worship, God. And then you're looking around, you're saying, what will my friends think? I can't do that. 
or you want to listen, but your friend keeps tapping and you're trying to try to say something funny or trying to get your distraction. I really want to challenge you for your life, for your, the sake of your eternal life and for your flourishment to even take away, not smugly, but lovingly to your friend saying, hey, I need life. And, and there's this, this image that's coming to mind. There's a famous book. It was, it was the most read published book outside of the Bible for a long time called Pilgrim's Progress, written many, many years ago in England, written from a, by a guy named John Bunyan while he was in jail. And there was this moment where Christian is his name. He just finally got the Bible and he's reading about the light. He's reading about hope. He's reading about the celestial city, which is another name for heaven. And there's a moment where he feels like he needs to get out of the town and the city of destruction. So he starts running out. And even his wife is saying, where are you going? Where are you going? What are you doing? And you know what Christian says? He plugs his ears and he runs. He says, life, life, eternal life. And I think some of you this week at camp need to do that to your friends. Say, I love you so-and-so, I love you so-and-so, and I don't mean harm, but I need eternal life. I need, I need reality, and you are holding me back, and I want you to come with me. If you can't come with me, I got to go ahead. So I just want to challenge some of you here. You're feeling that inside of you, and, and right now you're clinging extra tight to your friends because you don't want to let them go because they're your security. But let me tell you something. They will not be there with you on the last day when you see Jesus face-to-face. We will all have to stand account, and your boys, your sisters won't be there. You will have to give account by yourself. So I'm begging you with all the love in my heart, and if you hear my passion, don't take it as anger or hatred, but compassion that's moved for you. Some of you need to say, I got to go. I got I to gotta get right with this God. I got to know this God and walk away from your friends for a season so that one day you can come back with some light for them. We don't, Christians don't run away from the world. We go into the world with light. But if you're still so mixed up in the world, you need to take a step away so you can come back when you're right. So I want to pray with you. And I want to ask that you genuinely pray with me this, morning, this evening. Perhaps um, you are really struggling with what I'm saying in this whole week and this whole concept. And I want to encourage you to just say, you know what, God, if you're real and if I'm being deceived and you're better than I know, would you reveal that to me? Do you want to be deceived? What if you're deceived? What if the serpent is really real and you are deceived? Would you want to be deceived? See, the, the tricky thing about deception that I said last night is that if you're truly deceived, do you know you're deceived? No, you're fooled. You're fooled. Light is dark, dark is light, good is evil, and evil is good. Everything is flip-flopped, and you don't know. You're not seeing clearly. So maybe that's you. So I want to ask you with all the humility and boldness you can muster to pray, if you're real, God, if you are the creator, would you reveal if I'm deceived? Would you reveal to me who Jesus is? Because we're going to talk about Jesus tonight a lot. And I really want to beg you to leave your neighbor alone tonight. You may not care about your eternal soul, but can you have a little compassion for theirs and not hold them back? If you're on a way to push away from this light and you think this is darkness or whatever it is, at least have some respect to not pull others down with you. And so let's pray. Would you pray with me? And even if you're an atheist, agnostic, you name it, 
whatever title, whatever identity, would you just say, God, if you're real, just take a second, create, if you are real, would you speak to me? Would you reveal Jesus and all his glory tonight to me? Reveal the Son to me. Help me focus on you. Help me hear you. And then would you take a moment to pray for those sitting around you? Something that we often don't do, but let's meet with God together. Pray for those sitting around you. Pray for those in your group that you know are struggling, wrestling. Pray for them right now. And then would you be so kind to pray for me? that I would tell you the truth and nothing but the truth, that God would empower me to serve you well. So my Father, my good Abba Father, would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to preach your word and let your word do its work your powerful word that changes lives across centuries and across continents and languages. Let your word do what does well and transform us and help us behold the man, Jesus. Open up our eyes to behold wondrous things out of this word. And I pray against every demonic spirit that keeps us in bondage and lies, distraction, excess fatigue, and just pray that your spirit would reign right now. I come right now in the authority of Jesus' name against every dark spirit that keeps us in bondage, and that would be neutralized and broken right now in Jesus' name. Break right now in Jesus' name. Tremble at Jesus' name. Bow at Jesus' name. I'm gonna pray, Lord, that your spirit would reign right now in our hearts, every heart in here, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So something we learn from the Gospel of John is if you want to know the heart of the Father, you look at Jesus. John 14 makes this clear that if you know Jesus, you know the Father. So question that every person has wondered if they ever think about God is what is God like? And so if you want to know what God is like, you, you don't need to go further than looking at the Son. What is Jesus like? What is the Word incarnate like? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at different portraits of Jesus, different episodes of Jesus, and different claims he made throughout the Gospel of John from chapter 2 to 6. Each one of these situations are worthy of several sermons, and so please know that I'm going to be flying through, but I want to highlight some important points and then take a step back and say, what does this tell us about Jesus, about his character, about his heart? So John chapter 2, I'm going to have little excerpts here and there. John chapter 2, I'm going to just narrate first. Some of you are familiar with this, but Jesus is uh, just called some of his disciples, and he's at a wedding in Cana. And something happened at this wedding. Weddings happened for, would be celebrated for many days. I mean, they, they had a good time at weddings back then for many, many days. And something happened that was unthinkable. They ran out of wine. Now, wine in their culture uh, symbolized a lot of things, but it was very important. And one of the things that it would do is it, it, it symbolized fruitfulness and bounty and blessing. So what does it communicate when you run out of wine at your wedding? 
You know, talk about a bad omen. And on top of that, this is an honor-shame culture. And what that means is that um, they had great stock on uh, different things that they would do publicly and what that would represent the family. And so if they ran out of wine and the whole city got wind of this, it would create great shame, long-lasting shame upon this family. So Jesus catches news through his mom. The mom goes to Jesus, says, Jesus, hey, can you do something? And Jesus is like, it's not my time yet. But she's like, Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Servants, do whatever he says. He's like, dang, mom, come on, mom, right? It wasn't his time yet, but Jesus in his compassion for this family um, tells these servants, hey, you see those giant stone jars? We're talking jars that had 20 to 30 gallons, each of them, of water. There were multiple giant jars, and he said, okay, uh, I want you to fill them with water and then serve them. And, and, and you can imagine how confused they would be. You're gonna give them water? <laughs> I think they can tell the difference, right? So what they do is, many of you guys, if you grew up in church, you knew this. If you didn't grow up in church, check this out. This actually happened, it's a historical event. Eyewitnesses, remember, were there, they wrote this down. So they, the servant, the head servant takes the wine, brings it to the, the head of the ceremonies, and he drinks the wine, the water that miraculously turned to wine. And not just any kind of cheap $5 box wine at the store, like really vintage, oh, one of the, you know, like back in, you know, like 100-year-old kind of wine. And he's freaking out. He's like, this is the best wine ever. He's like, you guys, you guys are crazy. Most people give out this wine at the beginning, and then when everyone's kind of drunk and their taste buds are dull, then they give them the cheap kind of box wine from Walmart. But you guys, you guys are sneaky. You gave the best for last. And, and, and so this beautiful picture of them um, passing out the best wine they've ever had. Now, there's a lot here, but let me make a couple of comments of why this sign is so significant. So to understand why this sign, this is the first sign recorded, is so significant, would you look at Isaiah 25, 6. This is a passage of prophecy in, from Isaiah It's going to be on the screen, God willing, and this prophecy is one that talks about what the Messiah's reign will be like. What will it be like when God comes onto the earth? Maybe a slide will come, maybe not. Yes, he just wanted me to sweat for a second. So this is a prophecy made thousands of years before, or at least a thousand years or so. My math is off my head, but in Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Whoa, that's in the Bible. That God is gonna come and he's gonna throw a party where, where all peoples will be invited and one of the Parts of the menu is the best wine you could ever imagine and the best meat. Amen? Does that sound good? Can you imagine that meat? Well, oh, yes. And so if you know your Bible and you know this passage and then Jesus' first sign is the best aged wine, what are you thinking? See, that's why John 2.11, actually, before we go to John 2.11, look at Isaiah 25.9. The disciples know these passages, and if you know the rest of this chapter, you know verse 9 says this. In that day, the people will will proclaim, this is our God. 
We trusted in him and he saved us. This is Yahweh or the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. And so what does this chapter teach us? Is that when the Messiah comes, when, when God comes in the flesh, he's going to come. He's going to bring well Age, wine, and a feast for all kinds of people. He'll bring a celebration. And so the disciples and other discerning readers of this know this chapter. And so this is why John chapter 2 verse 11 says this. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember, belief is not wishing. Don't, don't get this vocabulary out of your um, this phrase out of your vocabulary, just have faith. No, 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 no. The disciples over and over again in the gospel of John, they believe because they see. They experience the goodness of God and then as a result, they have faith. They believe. Faith is believing in things that are real. There's tangibility. There's evidence. There's assurance. There's hope. And so the disciples see Jesus doing this miracle and they're like, wow. Something's going on here. They're thinking of these passages, likely. So what do we learn about Jesus? Quickly, we got a lot here. We got a lot of different portraits. I gotta kind of fly. First of all, Jesus cares about the shame of others. Jesus is not like, you should have planned better. You'll learn next time for your next kid. No, he covers their shame, which is a good foreshadow of what he will do so well later on. Jesus goes above and beyond. He's not like, all right, I'll get you some of the Walmart wine. Just fill in the gap so you're not ashamed. No, no, I'm going to give you the best. Jesus cares about redeeming creation. See, listen, we um, in, in the church in the West have a really complicated relationship with creation. And we have this false dichotomy called the secular sacred divide in which what we understand, many of us in certain camps that you've grown up in, in some church traditions, is that physical, this is all like necessary evil. Drinking, eating, playing, it's all kind of stuff you have to do, but that's not really spiritual. Like God's not really into playing or wreck or eating good food, right? Or enjoying a night with your wife or, or anything like that. God, that's not spiritual. Praying and Bible and singing, that's spiritual, but what we see is that in the garden, one of the things that was lost at the fall is the separation of the physical and the spiritual. That there was a divorce. And so man started to idolize the physical, abuse the physical, and it was instead of a conduit to make them want God, love God, worship God, be like a sun's ray that leads them to the sun, to God, it became a distraction from God, and so there's a, this divorce in this world. And so we feel this tension of how do I enjoy good gifts that God has given me and still love God? How do I enjoy food and wine and laughter and friendships and not idolize them in arts, in the beauty of this world? And so what God is showing us in this passage is a foreshadow that when Jesus comes back, he's going to redeem all of creation, all, our, all of the brokenness in our bodies, in our sexuality, in our thinking, in our emotions, in our relationships, all of it is gonna be redeemed. Not just reconciliation with God, See, one of the mistakes in many churches is that we think about the gospel too narrowly in the sense that we think that we're only getting access to God, but what the gospel does, it starts ushering the day where we're gonna have reconciliation in all areas of life. Most centrally, our reconciliation with God. Okay, there's a lot there. We'll get into that more tomorrow night. Another thing, Jesus is generous with good gifts. Jesus is not the enemy of pleasure. He brings the parties. 
Now, I don't have time to break down of how a good biblical like, idea of how you should party as a teenager. So you talk to your pastors and trusted people on how to do that if they do it well. But Christians should be the best at partying. They just need to redeem it. Right? The, the problem is, is that most Christians, like all people, abuse creation. We do. We struggle with creation. And so you got to learn how to redeem it and not just avoid it. So I'm not making a comment about alcohol or all the kind of different things that get lumped in that world. I'm just saying that Jesus brings the party and you got to learn how to redeem it and contextualize it in your situation. Okay, email me at maddie at Heme Lake if you have questions about that. Okay, and finally, this is the God that they've waited for. He's giving him a glimpse. Now, John chapter 2, I got to keep moving. John chapter 2, the later, later on starting verse 14. Before we get into this, I want to remind you what the temple is, because Jesus is about to go crazy in the temple, okay? The temple was a constant reminder that heaven and earth have been separated because of the fall, and so the temple was created by God as a way to mediate his presence with sinful people and a holy God. The temple was where heaven and earth kissed, where they touched, because there had been a separation from the fall. This is a place where we could have communion and connection with God, but it was very limited by certain people. Now, over the years, the Jews started to worship the temple, not use the temple to worship God, but they start to find confidence in the temple. They, They start to find security in the temple. They start to behold the beauty of the architecture and say, wow, look at the temple of the Lord. And even if they were cheating on Yahweh, cheating on God in in private, doing all kinds of immoral, wicked acts, they would say, you know what? We got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're good. God can't be mad at us. We got his temple. We got his house. But let me share with you what Jesus does in chapter 2, verse 14 on the screen. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the table exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changer coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, what would incite such a response from such a meek, gentle man? What would tick Jesus off like this, right? If, you, if, if your concept of Jesus is primarily media, you have this very gentle, meek, kind of subdued, glazed over look Jesus who loves holding lambs, right? And just is very mild. And yet you see a ferocity in Jesus here. What would create such ferocity and frustration and anger in Jesus, Well, in general, if you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're going to see is that Jesus was often gentle with those that the world was harsh towards. He was gentle and compassionate towards those that the world was harsh towards. And on the other hand, he was often very direct and sometimes harsh to the religious leaders that oppressed people. And so anybody here, anybody here, raise your hand, can't stand hypocrites in the church. Yep, yeah, oh yeah. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I can, hallelujah to that one, Sam. You know who doesn't like them even more? Jesus. He can't stand that. 
He can't stand religious leaders who abuse people with their power. And you know what they were doing? Is that the, the courtyard of the temple, there was one courtyard called the courtyard of the Gentiles. And this is a place where all kinds of people who are non-Jews could come and pray and connect with Yahweh. So those who weren't Jews by birth could come and get some, some semblance of nearness to Yahweh and connect with him. But what did they do instead of giving that place, a place of, of sanctuary, of peace for them to connect? They filled it with tables and money and selling. It was like a market. Have you ever tried to have a quiet time with God in the middle of a market? Right? It's not very peaceful or easy to connect And so instead of loving the Gentiles and giving them a picture that God wants all peoples, they put up a sign emotionally saying, you're not wanted, you're not important, God doesn't want people like you. And it's very likely that the Jewish leaders were profiting off of these merchants. They were misrepresenting God. You know what ticks off Jesus so much is that when people grossly misrepresent God and wrong people, they were wronging the people and, there were, and, and this is one other thing they would do, is that people who want to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice in the temple, they would travel from very far away to go to the temple, and because of the long terrain and, and the long journey, they would often not be able to bring animals. And so what they would do is they would bring their money, travel, and when they would get to Jerusalem, they would buy livestock there to sacrifice there. Does that make sense? It's economical, but it's kind of like a a sports game. You go there and you're like, $5 for a water? And they're like, sorry, you don't know, you have no other option. You came all this way. It's kind of like that. We got you. There's one water fountain for 50,000 of us. Good luck finding it, right? And so that's this kind of mindset they had. And so these people came to worship God and now they come and all these money changers in the temple courts are actually fleecing them and abusing them and pocketing off of their misfortune. So Jesus is ticked off by that. And he finally, he's putting a judgment on the temple, saying the temple is not God. You cannot find security in the temple. It's a, it's a gift that you are abusing. And so what does Jesus do? He starts tearing things down. He starts flipping tables up over. And the Jews are ticked off at Jesus saying, how dare you do this? Look at verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. It should be on the screen in a second. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, what? They exclaimed. It's taken over 46 years to build this temple and you could rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this and they believed. Remember, belief is not wishing, not hoping, not just blind faith. They believe because they see the evidence, both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. What the the Jews didn't understand is that Jesus is the true temple they've always longed for. Remember, I said that the temple was God's mediation so that sinful man connect with holy God, his loving provision, so that heaven can meet earth. And what Jesus is saying, I'm the better temple. I'm the true temple you've always longed for. The temple that we have right here is not sufficient. It's not enough. I'm the true temple. And when I die, I will rise. I will truly be the bridge between sinful man and the goodness of God. So what do we learn about Jesus here? A lot, but a few things. Jesus is the true temple that will bring and bridge the gap between us. Jesus will rise again. Jesus does not carry, care about empty religion devoid of true devotion and integrity. 
Jesus has a big issue with abuse. Anybody here ticked off when leaders abuse their power? Yeah? Good. Jesus hates it more. He hates it more. No leader will ever get off without getting what is due them. Maybe not in the season and the time you want, but Jesus will call them to account in his time in a very severe way. And I just call out to every leader here, you have a great responsibility. Don't take it lightly. You are representing Jesus in the way you do all that you do. Fathers and mothers here, you represent what God is like in the way you parent. Don't abuse that authority. Jesus hates that. Jesus cares about truth. There's no deceit in him. Jesus cares about the outcasts and the poor who are being extorted. Jesus cares about foreigners and those that the Jews are being prejudiced and biased towards. Jesus cares about all people to know God. You think that the idea of ending racism is a modern day progressive value? No. This is from God's heart. God has always intended for, to tear down the walls that divide us. This is a thing from God that the culture has subverted and they try to make it their own. God's heart and idea is to end racism. Let's look at John 4, speaking of racism. John chapter 4, Jesus is journeying to, in, is in Galilee, and he stops by a town of Sychar in Samaria. Now, real quick, without getting into too many details, Sumerians were half-breeds. There were some of the people who were mixed with other Gentiles, and so they were kind of Jewish, but not Jewish. They kind of worshiped God, but didn't worship God exactly, and so the Jews and Gentiles and the Samaritans hate each other. It's like a common Jewish prayer would be like, thank God I'm not a Samaritan. It's very de derogatory, very prejudiced in their heart towards Samaritans. And, and let me just be real with you, in this time, there was a deep prejudice in misogyny, a, a, a deep prejudice against women. So let's see what Jesus does. Jesus goes into this town and he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. She comes at a time that no one is there when it's hot. Why? Because she's an outcast. She's had multiple husbands. It's probably likely she's infertile. And the man she's living with right now is not even her husband. And Jesus talks to her. He looks at her. She's a person. And he requests a drink. She's surprised at his request because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. She's like, him? Her? <laughs> Me? Are you serious? Who are you? You must be some weird person. You, you know that you're breaking the cultural norms. You can't talk to me. This is scandalous. Just me and you alone at this well because his disciples went to town to buy food? What are you doing? And Jesus asked her for a drink. Verse 10, she re Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. At first, she literally, she takes him literally, asking him how he could get water if he had no bucket, <laughs> which makes sense. He's, he's talking crazy talk unless he's God. And so every single person who would say what he just said sounds insane. But Jesus, expla Jesus explains to her that the water he offers is not physical. Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water that you have, right, this water from the well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them, read that with me, eternal life. Okay, 
This is really important. I'm going to do a little tangent here. A lot of times here, preachers will then emphasize when they get to this point of the story that Jesus satisfies our longings. He is a satisfier. And that is 100% true. He's better than sin. He does satisfy. But that is not the main focus here. Before you throw something at me, let me explain. Right now, we are in a temporary, complicated time where Jesus has come and he's dealt with the penalty of sin. And now he's given us the Holy Spirit to deal with the power of sin. But we're still dealing with the presence of sin. And when Jesus comes back again, there will be no longer the presence of sin anymore. And so right now we're in this complicated in-between phase where we still die. We still have aches. We still have brokenness in our emotions and in our bodies, in our war, wars, in our world. And so we have hungry stomachs. And when you drink water, you get thirsty again. We have anxious hearts and so forth. And so we're always going to be partially satisfied. And I think this is important to admit Because many Christian songs you'll hear and many preachers you'll hear will say stuff like, I am fully satisfied in you, God. You're all I want. You're all I've ever needed. We sing songs like that. That's, you guys don't sing that song. That was, that was like 20 years old. Okay. Some of you guys know that song, right? But we have all these songs that give us this impression that we've arrived and that we're fully satisfied and we'll never be unsatisfied again. And believe me, Jesus does satisfy. He does. But it's not full yet. Because we're separated from him physically right now. We have the Holy Spirit, but he is not here bodily right now. He has not redeemed this earth. Heaven has not come down onto the earth and redeemed this earth. And so, it's like, imagine you are engaged and you're separated by continents. And you're writing to your fiance and you're saying, I am so fully satisfied with how things are. Right? He or she would write back and be like, what? here's the ring back. Right? <laughs> I love this arrangement where we're so separated. No. Until Jesus returns, every Christian should have an ache inside saying, I want more. I, I need more. And the problem is a lot of you have heard bad teaching or unclear teaching from songs or teachers that give you the impression that after you leave Hume, you're going to leave and you're always going to be happy and full. And so the moment you feel unsatisfied, the moment you feel depression or sad, you're like, what is going on? God's not real. God has left me. Maybe I'm not a Christian. But until Jesus comes back, we're going to feel this ache and longing. We're going to have moments where we're deeply satisfied, deeply fulfilled. And then times where we're saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? I want more. I'm feeling ache and pain and hunger for more. And I do this long tangent because I think that will help free some of you. Because you will go home and you're going to feel empty at times. And I just want you to know that's normal until we see Jesus face to face. We're longing for him. You feeling me? She's like, yeah, I need my preacher rag and wipe off the sweat that I don't have. (laughs) Asians don't sweat a lot. (laughs) So this passage is Jesus teaching that he is the bread of life. He's about to teach that in a few verses and that he's living water and he will give us everlasting life. Back to the narrative. I'm going to skip a little bit for the sake of time. Jesus 
let me narrate this and explain it. Jesus basically tells her, listen, there's gonna be a time coming where no longer will spirituality and knowing me will be limited to a mountain or a place, but my spirit will come and all peoples will be able to worship me in spirit and truth. And I think that's such a beautiful idea that we are not limited to know God based on where you are. When I went on to an Israel study trip, I, I, was, I just was so saddened as I saw people like crying over different, different monuments and like treating it like God was there in Israel. And, and there's something special about going to the Holy Land. But I remember being on the Sea of Galilee, looking out and imagining certain scenes from the Bible and then, and then coming home and then thinking, God is just as real right here in my room than there. It's a beautiful thing that the Spirit of God is not limited by geography. It's transcontinental. It's a beautiful thing. Let's keep going. Jesus tells her he's the Messiah in verse 25 and 26. So what do we learn about this, about Jesus's heart? Well, this woman, this Samaritan woman, after she encounters the Messiah, do you know what she does? She goes out and tells everybody about Jesus. So one of the first evangelists is a woman. That's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. When people say, should women be in ministry? I'm like, why is that even a question? Now, you can have questions about what scope and what that looks like in every context in the church, and that's a good biblical argument. But the idea, should women be in ministry? That, are you kidding me? Everybody's in ministry. Everyone can tell someone about Jesus. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because for whatever reason, our culture has given us the impression that this book is suppressing women and not pro-women. And though people who say that don't know their Bibles, and the people who do know their Bibles who have suppressed these verses or ignored these verses because their biases and their own blind spots, they need to repent and see that God cares about women and Jesus is talking to this woman. She's, he's talking to someone that if anyone caught him talking to her would be like, dude, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. He's putting himself on the line with courage. And Jesus, what, do we, what else we learn? He gives eternal life. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And Jesus will make the Father accessible to all people one day. All right, let's move on to the next scene. John chapter 5. All right, John chapter 5, verse 2. It's going to be on the screen. Let's read this together so I can drink some water. John chapter 5, verse 2. Were you with me, please? Inside the city. Near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda. Thirty-eight years. For I have no one to put me into the pool. Really good reading. Well done, guys. First of all, you need to understand that this area near the Pool of Siloam would have been horrifically smelly. I remember the first mission trip I went on as a 15-year-old, and we went ministering to people in Mexico City, and there's one of the largest dumps in the world is in Mexico City, and people literally live in the mounds. And I remember talking to a boy trying to 
care for this little boy and he has like flies just all over his face and he doesn't even know that they're on him. He's so used to it. The, this man has been laying there for 38 years, likely has no friends or family because in this culture, when you suffered, people often interpret that as the wrath of God upon you. Oh, you must have done something wrong. What did you do? What did your parents do? That's not biblical, by the way. 38 years. Have you ever tried to be around or serve someone who's bedridden for just even a few days? They smell. You can't do good baths. It's not like he just like walked through a shower every day at the YMCA. He reeks. His hair is unkept. There's people all around this pool who are suffering and literally dying. You don't hang out at that pool for a vacation. You hang out at that pool because you have no hope and you need hope. And in this culture, there's no social security system. There's no situation like that. There are beggars. Their only hope is that if they have family or if people have mercy and charity on them. So they're begging around this pool. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk through because he has to. He goes out of his way to go to this pool filled with rotting flesh, with disgusting people, smelly people, outcast people. And you know one of the things that happens when you're an outcast is that you have terrible social skills because you're an outcast. You don't have the practice. So when you think about physical ailments, also know that there's mentally weak, mental weakness that usually follows. When you don't get human interaction, that, that degrades the mind and the brain and the processing. And so they're not fun to talk to. So we're talking about socially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, there's brokenness all around these people. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk around and say, ooh, you guys deserve that. You guys are too smelly. For, clean up your mess and then one day come to me. Jesus walks right into that mess right into that mess, and he walks up to that man. He singles him out. He heals them instantly. So what do we learn about Jesus here? A lot. But Jesus has the power over creation to reverse the curse that is on all our bodies and all this creation. Jesus cares about the outcast. If any of you here feel like an outcast, feel lonely, feel like you don't fit in, you're in good company. And this is a good God for outcasts. He cares about outcasts. He sees outcasts. In fact, the people who don't think they're outcasts, who think they're high and mighty and they got everything together, Jesus seems to not kind of ignore them (laughs) because they haven't humbled themselves. They're not ready for him, but these people, they're ready for him, many of them. They have no hope and Jesus comes and brings them hope. Here's another observation. Jesus is not afraid of our mess. You may be afraid of your mess. Your friends may be afraid of your mess, so we hide our mess. Jesus is not afraid of your mess, both physically and spiritually, emotionally. Your trauma, your hurt, he can handle it. He has compassion. Inside of his heart is not recoiling when he sees it, but compassion, mercy. And Jesus, he heals this man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders miss the point. Instead of seeing that God is in the flesh healing people, bringing shalom to all bodies and, and culture and redeeming this man from being outcast in society. They get caught up on the Sabbath and religious rules. And when I say religious rules, I mean man-made rules on top of the Bible rules. I'm not say- saying the Bible and like regular rules. They're getting caught up in their additions to the Bible. So what does Jesus do? John chapter five, verse 20. 
I want to share a passage that probably is surprising for you. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. It'll be on the screen. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son, listen to this, absolute authority to judge. This is verse 22. So that everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son is certainly not honoring the father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. This is an important passage to cover, though I know that you not being able to see it on the screen and me just reading it quickly is probably hard for you to catch, but I want you to hear a couple things. Jesus right here, literally saying that he will judge. He will judge people, which doesn't sound really nice, does it? And I think it's important for us to hear this because I want to share with you a quote that I think will be on the screen by Tim Keller. Maybe? Yes! We couldn't get the Bible. We got Tim Keller, I guess. That's okay. All right. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. This is really important because, listen, one of the temptations that all of us here are tempted by because of the fall is that we want to take the throne. We want to make God in our own image. We want to image. We want to be like God and we want to choose what is good and evil, what is right or wrong. We want to define truth. We want to have my truth, our truth and create it. And one of the challenges that we're going to have, every one of us has, and when I say every one of us, I mean it. Every one of you, including me, especially me, is that we will take this Bible and we will look at passages that make our hearts sing and avoid everyone that makes our hearts sting. We're going to avoid passages that make us uncomfortable. We're going to love the Jesus that we want to paint to fit our image, to fit our cultural hero, to fit our cultural desires. And when you see Jesus say here is that those will, they will never be condemned for their sins if they are believing in me. What is the opposite of that? What does that imply? That people will be what? Condemned who do not believe in him. This passage is saying that Jesus is a judge. Yes, he's a defender of the widow and the orphan and the poor and the foreigner. Yes, he reaches out to the outcast, but he also is a judge. And if those of those in that context and this, the us right here in this room do not trust him, do not believe in him and put our hope in allegiance to him, you will be condemned by him. You need to hear that. That is a biblical Jesus. That is both kind and gentle and the most gent loving, most compassionate person you can ever imagine and yet ferocious, ferocious, ferocious and just and a just judge to the wicked. You need to have the whole biblical Jesus, the Jesus that will challenge your assumptions, challenge you. I mean, doesn't even just make sense logically that if we understand less, there is less than 1% that it, there is to know in the world, Right? Some of you less than 1% of 1% of 1%, right? Doesn't it make sense that the creator who could create all of this, who never had a beginning, would regularly challenge your concept of, of life? Would it make sense? If it doesn't 
If your God never challenges you and you're always comfortable, then I guarantee you, you have created a God in your own image. You know you're at a good biblical church, not because you feel comfortable. People say that all the time. Oh, man, I'm so comfortable in my church. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? You should be comforted because the Holy Spirit comforts us so we can comfort other in our afflictions. But you shouldn't be always comforted. Sometimes you should feel challenged. You want a God that's bigger than you, worthy of worship. One that says, whoa, you're, you're not like me. If your worship of God is because you are like me, then who are you ultimately worshiping? Yourself. I want to close with John chapter 6, verse 60. I want to end with this question. What are you going to do with this Jesus? Jesus has this very, very difficult teaching, challenging teaching about his flesh and about his blood. And I'm not going to get to the details right now. In verse 60, this is what happens. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Listen, if your understanding of Jesus does not sometimes cause you to say, this is hard, God. I don't understand this passage. What, why? Romans 9? Why? I don't get it. Why Revelation 22? Why? I don't get that passage. Why is that there? If you don't feel that, then again, you are worshiping yourself and you are stripping God to be you. Now, what does Jesus say? Verse 61, Jesus was aware the disciples were complaining. Should be on the screen. So he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? Verse 63, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe. And he knew who would betray him. Verse 65, then he said, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. If you are offended by Jesus' words, and you're probably interpreting them correctly. Verse 66, at this point, many of the disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked them, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter, one of the few times he speaks up and says something really good. Verse 68, Simon, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, you have to understand this very important principle I'm about to share with you. Please, if I can get your attention, we're about to, about to close. Let me, let me get your attention if I can. You with me, guys? You with me? Yeah. Great. Yes. At this point, many of the disciples are still very confused about Jesus' identity. They don't understand a lot of why he's doing what he's doing. They don't get who he is, really, and in fact, they still won't get him even until after he's resurrected. And then he's still explaining to them, which is an important truth to understand because what Peter says about God right here is true. He is the Holy One of God. He is the Messiah. So this is the important principle I want to share with you that I, I hope you can receive and understand. You can know something truly without knowing it fully. You can know something truly without understanding something fully. Listen, my son, who just left... <laughs> knows that his daddy loves him. 
My son knows his dad loves him, but he doesn't know the fullness of my love for him yet. He will never know until glory. You can know something truly without understanding every little detail and complexity of it. That's not giving you a free space to just be lazy and not to dig deep in your Bible or not know theology or not know things. But what it's giving you freedom to do and permission to do is you can truly believe in the Son, truly believe in Jesus, truly follow Him, even if you have questions. Even if there's some things that still don't make sense and you still got an itch that you can't yet scratch, it's still not right. If you accept the premise and the lie that you have to understand something fully to truly love and truly follow, then you will never be able to follow and love God because he's the infinite God. He's the indescribable. He's God. He's the uncreated one. How could you ever know the fullness of who he is? And that's the joy is that we have a God that's bigger than us and forever we're going to get to know him. And so I, I just want to give you permission to feel, to, to remove that shackle, that intellectual lie, that to understand something truly, you have to understand it fully. That's the lie from the evil one. And just like if any of you guys will fall in love one day and get married to someone really special, you're not going to be like, well, one day I'll marry you once I know everything about you, Right? <laughs> 50 years later, uh, she calls, can we get married yet? No, I don't don't know you. I can't commit yet, right? You don't need to know fully to love and know truly. So the disciples here are struggling, but they have tasted and seen enough that Jesus is the real deal. He is the source of life. They know he is trustworthy, even though they don't understand everything. They know every other option is terrible and just dust. Jesus is the one with eternal life. And if you can get that, that's going to help buoy you through many trials in life. And let me tell you this. I've been walking with Jesus 19 years on tomorrow. Tomorrow's my spiritual birthday, 19 years. And listen, yeah. There have been so many times where I've had moments where I've struggled. God, why is this happening? Why is this person struggling? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening in the world? But I tasted and seen that God was good enough, truly, not fully, that it took me through those seasons where I said, God, I don't get why you're doing the way you're doing it. I don't understand. I'm struggling. I'm even angry at you in some ways. But listen, I know that you have the words of eternal life. I know truly, even though I don't know fully. So I hope tonight students, that you got a little glimpse of the beauty of Christ. He is so good, and I just gave you a little glimpse. There is so much more to be seen in the scriptures. Devour this word. See the man. When you read the Bible, read it with the eye to say, what does this tell me about the heart of God? What is he like? Don't just read these familiar scriptures over and over again, like, oh, yeah, I've heard that, but ask, what does this say about the heart of Christ? And fall more deeply in love with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for helping me Oh, no, I didn't finish on time. Okay, Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for the goodness of who you are, Jesus. You are so sweet. I just delight in you and who you are. And I pray that every one of us grew a little bit closer to knowing how sweet and good you are. But I also ask that every single student, every single leader, every one of us will walk away and make a decision about what they're going to do about you. Because you're not someone that we can be neutral about your claims, your identity, who you are, requires us to make some sort of response. And so would you continue work in every student as we depart from here and throughout this whole week and reveal yourself to us. 
And Father, I ask if I said anything that was an error, that was not representing you either in tone or in content, would you correct me? But everything that is true from heaven, from above, and right and good, let it deeply shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.